This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we uncover the series of deceptions behind D-Day. Most importantly, Operation Bodyguard, and the purpose behind that was to try and deceive the German high command as to when and where the invasion of, of Europe was going to happen. We hear how several operations fed into this turning point of the Second World War. If it hadn't worked and the Germans had transferred their considerable military resources in the Pas de Calais down to Normandy, then we might have had a very, very different result. And we discover how the iconic fortress of Dover Castle played its role. All of that to come very shortly in our interview with English heritage historian Paul Patterson. But first, let's map out some future episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. I think many people today get a great deal of solace out of gardening, and I think monks would probably be the same. People are calmed by horticulture, and there's a certain process in gardening. You have to do certain jobs at certain times of the year, and that fits in very nicely with that ordered, timed lifestyle. Why do fashions change? Why do they change at different rates at different points in the world? You know, this is a sort of huge question within fashion history and fashion studies as a discipline. We can look through that gap we've just walked through where the sun would rise in midsummer and 180 degrees in the other direction. The sun at midwinter would set between the two tallest stones of this trilithon. Be sure to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date. Now, on the 6th of June 1944, 75 years ago, the biggest seaborne invasion in history took place, providing a turning point in the events of the Second World War. However, behind the mission to land Allied soldiers on the beaches of Normandy was another operation, one designed to deceive and distract Nazi Germany long enough to allow the landings to take place, with soldiers stationed at Dover Castle on the Kent coast playing an important role. Joining me to unravel the events of D-Day is Senior Properties Historian for English Heritage, Paul Patterson. Paul, thanks for joining us. Hello, I'm very pleased to be here. So... We're here to talk about D-Day, obviously, a major anniversary coming up. What was D-Day and why did it take place? Well, uh, D-Day was an immensely important event in the history of the world. And it was the beginning of the invasion of Northwest Europe uh, on the 6th of June 1944 to liberate Europe from the control of Nazi Germany during the Second World War. They'd basically taken most of Europe and were holding it in a grip of iron and the Americans and the British and other nations decided to start to plan to take Europe back. And D-Day was the beginning of that process. Which countries were taking part in the Allies? Uh, It was quite a big effort, obviously. It was mainly Britain, the United States and Canada, but it included many other countries, including New Zealand, Australia, Belgium, France, Poland, Netherlands, Czechoslovakia, as was, Norway and Greece. So in all... On the 6th of June, about 132,000 soldiers landed on the beaches in Normandy as the beginning of the operation in northwest Europe. And another 23,500 parachuted in. So it was the largest amphibious landing in history and I think probably one of the biggest military operations you know, of all time. Presumably some of these troops had got out of their respective countries and found their way to the UK before taking part in this massive operation. 
Yeah, that's correct. I mean, planning had uh, been going on for some time and uh, there had been American and Canadian troops and uh, and other troops in England and Scotland and Wales, of course, for you know a lot of the time in 1943 and early 1944. And they'd been training for the operation intensively. So when did the planning for D-Day really start and who were the main architects? Well, the idea was first discussed in the middle of 1942, mainly between the British and the Americans, because the Americans had only just come into the war in December of the previous year, 1941. And at that time, the Russians in particular were under pressure on the Eastern Front and the Americans wanted to try and relieve that by opening a second front. But Winston Churchill, on behalf of the British government, judged that that was too early. So in June 1942, it was postponed as an idea. And then resurrected again in the middle of 1943 at a conference in Washington, D.C., in the United States. And then it was agreed that the operation would take place and it would be timetabled for the 1st of May, 1944. And from that time, the middle of 43, planning began in earnest. So it's the governments of the main allied nations that, who conceived the idea under their respective leaders, you know, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, President Franklin D. Roosevelt for the United States, uh, in cooperation with Joseph Stalin, of course, for the Russians, who was not deeply involved in the operation, but was deeply involved in consultation about it. Uh, and then an organisation was set up to begin the planning in March 1943. And that organisation was a kind of joint command, a joint allied command. And it was called COSAC, which was basically the chief of staff to the supreme allied commander. So it was a planning organisation. And that was headed by someone called General Frederick Morgan, who was a British officer, and he began the planning of what became known as Operation Overlord, which was the big invasion plan for the Normandy beaches. So he presents his first plan in July 1943 at another conference, and it's knocked about a little bit and finally agreed in November 1943 at a conference in Tehran, where the plan is agreed with the Russians. And so from that time, November 43, it's go. And is it go for June the 5th and or 6th, 1944, or were they still aiming for May the 1st, as you just mentioned? They were still aiming for May, but during the course of planning, they decided to postpone it by a month. And the eventual date settled on was June the 5th, 1944. Everything was planned for June the 5th. All the troops were ready, all the planning had been done, all the resources were in place, everybody was on tenterhooks waiting to go. But the weather forecast was poor, and in fact, weather would be very important to the success of an amphibious landing, and so it was decided to postpone it. But there was a potential window the next day, June the 6th, because it was planned to take place on a full moon, so that there was sufficient light to see what you were doing, and also on the occasion of a high tide, so the troops were under cover of their assault landing craft till the last possible minute, and also didn't have to spend much time in the water. And fortunately, there was a break, because thereafter, in the following days, the weather deteriorated again, so in a way they got lucky. Did the actual operation, in terms of the airborne paratrooper operation and glider operation, also start happening, in a way, late on the 5th? It starts on the 6th, in fact, because some of those airdrops were designed to capture key points. So, for instance, the famous one is Pegasus Bridge, where British paratroopers dropped in uh, to take a canal that led up to Caen because uh, there was a possibility that 
the flank of the landings on the adjacent beaches would be taken over by German armour coming across the bridge. And so they took that bridge. That's the first operation of Operation Overlord. And that's very early on the morning of the 6th. Did everything go to plan on D-Day? I mean, I know it's a multi, multi-task operation, wasn't it? Were there things that were unsuccessful? Or? Well, not a lot actually went to plan, except that the troops landed successfully. Obviously, there were casualties. There were fewer casualties than expected, although they were still considerable. But strong currents, for instance, in the sea pushed some of the units a considerable distance from their designated landing points. So they had a bit of ground to make up, although in some cases it was beneficial because the defences of the Germans in those locations were less. Overcast conditions on the day meant that the bombing accuracy to try and destroy the German beach defences and the defences in land was not as accurate as it, as it could have been. So clearance of the, those beach defences caused delays and congestion of troops and equipment on the beaches as they were being landed. And most importantly, I suppose, the thing that didn't work is that the plan envisaged the capture of several towns by the end of the first day. Uh, and they were uh, Carentan, Saint-Lô, Caen and Bayeux. That was uh, an essential part of the plan, to try and capture those as quickly as possible through the element of surprise. Whereas, in fact, some of them took a long time. I mean, Bayeux was captured on the 15th of June, Saint-Lô on July the 19th, Caen on the 6th of August. So it took a lot longer to knock the Germans out of the defended areas than was anticipated. It was absolutely successful operation, given the size of it, but you couldn't say that it went exactly to plan. No. And of course, these things never do, especially when you've got the English weather and so many logistical things to bear in mind. Gosh, yeah. Troops, all that equipment to land, fuel to land, hundreds and hundreds of tanks, guns. It was a massive operation. If it had gone exactly according to plan, it would have been a a miracle. Obviously, we talked about the casualties just now and and how that fed into it being semi-successful, shall we say. How many troops lost their lives and do you know which countries suffered the worst losses? Well, just on that one day, the 6th of June up to midnight, the estimate is for about 10,500 Allied soldiers killed, wounded, captured or missing. Of those, a fairly accurate figure of 4,414 were killed. That's from all the Allied nations, yeah? German casualties are not known for certain, but it's estimated at between four and 10,000. So it's, you know, it's an enormous number of soldiers to die in one day. I believe, of, of course, from Omaha Beach, where the Americans landed and which has been immortalised in the film Saving Private Ryan, it was a real bloodbath. Yeah, I think that was the worst. And I think it was something like, this is not an accurate figure, but it's something like 2,000 killed, wounded, etc., that was the biggest. And out of 4,414 4, on all five beaches, that's pretty considerable. It's interesting as well that you said that some troops were captured. Yes, well, if you think about an operation like this, there are five separate landings on the beaches and there are a number of parachute landings. And so as troops make progress from their landing positions, they're actually pushing through defences. German counterattacks, of course, would be fairly immediate once they realised what was happening. And those are the occasions when the Allied troops are perhaps a little bit too far from their lines of communication that they get cut off and captured. It makes you wonder what then happened to them, whether they somehow rejoined their ranks when the troops 
brought up the rear? Or I, I think it's a combination. Some would be fairly quickly recaptured, but others probably did end up as prisoners of war. So what were the other operations that led into the D-Day operation itself, of Operation Overlord? Because there were many more, weren't there? This wasn't just one thing. It was a multi-operational operation. Well, I suppose you can break it down into three main operations. Uh, Operation Overlord, in fact, is the codename for the the overall operation for the invasion of Northwestern Europe. So that's the big overriding plan. And then Operation Neptune is the code word for the amphibious assault that we've just been talking about, the actual landings on the beaches on the 6th of June. And then, most importantly, there was a huge deception operation called Operation Bodyguard. And the purpose behind that was to try and deceive the German high command as to when and where the invasion of of Europe was going to happen. And so Operation Bodyguard involved a combination of real and fake operations as far afield as the Balkans, southern France, Norway, Bulgaria, but especially in the Pas de Calais, a little further east along the French coast. And the Pas de Calais is the short part between Dover and Calais, isn't it? That's correct. And the Ger- we know the Germans believed that that was the most likely place of landing because by this time we had cracked the German Enigma codes and were fully aware of what they were thinking. We could also feed false information through various channels and gauge the result of that false information. And so we already knew that they thought the landing was going to be in the Pas de Calais. So the major part of Operation Bodyguard, which was a sub-operation called Operation Fortitude South, was to reinforce that belief in German minds and so divert their attention from the real landings that were going to take place in Normandy. Furthermore, they wanted to try and keep that illusion up after the invasion had actually taken place so that the Germans were still thinking several weeks after D-Day that the main invasion was going to come in the Pas de Calais across the Strait of Dover. And that Operation Fortitude was a key operation to the success of the landings on D-Day. Was there a Fortitude North as well? There was indeed, yes. Fortitude North was an entirely fake operation to convince the Germans there was going to be another large invasion in Norway, which they occupied, and from there down into continental Europe. So D-Day in itself is Deception Day. You know, deception is, is a key element in, in the whole operation, really, the whole multi-operation. Absolutely. It underpins the military planning that's going on for D-Day. And it's such, such an essential thing. I mean, if it hadn't worked and the Germans had transferred their considerable military resources in the Pas de Calais down to Normandy, then we might have had a very, very different result on D-Day. So the success of Operation Fortitude South was key to the success of D-Day as a whole. Speaking of another D, what was Dover Castle's role in planning for the invasion? Well, Operation Fortitude South was concentrated in East and Southern England. And the underlying main element of the plan was the creation of a fake army. So through various means, including fake wireless traffic, controlled diplomatic leaks, physical deception and double agents, the aim was to convince the Germans 
there was a huge American army in the east and southeast of England called FUSAG, the first United States Army Group. Dover was at the centre of this in the sense that the invasion by this fake army into the Pas de Calais was going to be launched from the Dover area. And so the whole idea was to try and convince the Germans that there was this huge army in the area. They had to generate an enormous quantity of fake wireless traffic by these fake military units. And so there were communications units scattered all over southeast and eastern England that were, they were mobile, most of them, and they were generating these fake messages between the fake units of this first United States Army group. It was effective because it was virtually impossible in those days to triangulate the positions accurately of where those units were. And so this mass of traffic going backwards and forwards from one place to another actually did convince the Germans that there was a huge American army here. Because of the absolute total control of the skies by the Allied forces, the Germans weren't able to do much air reconnaissance. So they were working blind. And the other element to this was there was a network of spies that were being controlled by the Allied authorities. And they were reinforcing this idea and feeding more fake information to the German high command. These were double agents then? They were. Had they been previously captured? Yes, most, most of them were originally German agents, but they were sussed out, if you like, by military intelligence in this country, and all of them were turned and they were utterly convincing in terms of the information that they gave to the Germans. And again, because of Bletchley Park and the deciphering of Enigma, we could judge the effectiveness of that fake information that was being fed by the double agents. And I think they're probably quite a key part of this entire deception, aren't they? Feeding through that information. Absolutely. I mean, the whole thing is so elaborate. You know, it's, there are so many different elements to it. And this careful control of individuals who are trusted by the German authorities is, is really important. Were there any operations to make sure that people weren't saying the wrong thing in the pub? <laughs> I don't know whether there were any operations, but the knowledge of D-Day and what individual units were going to be doing was kept secret until the last minute. They, they knew they were training for something big, but they didn't know any details of the operation, where they were going. So key information was kept to the very senior, senior commanders uh, and not released until the very last minute. They know what type of operation they were going to do. They were well trained for it, but they didn't actually know a great deal about it. And what about regular people? They, were they completely shut out and completely in the dark until suddenly word got back? Absolutely. Yeah, they knew nothing. It's just amazing that that level of secrecy was able to be upheld for so many years within these military ranks. I think it, it's, it's testament to the kind of supreme loyalty and integrity of the people who were planning this operation. At the end of the day, they, they knew the cost of leaking information, even a small amount of information. And so they were tight-lipped and they kept it to themselves. We touched on Dover Castle just earlier and... I understand that a little bit earlier in the war, Dover Castle had also played a role in another operation, Operation Dynamo, and that was a key event in the Second World War. What do you know about Operation Dynamo? Operation Dynamo was effectively the rescue of the major section of the British Army that had gone to France in early in 1940. And uh, 
the Germans had launched their great attack into Belgium and France and the Netherlands in May 1940 and rapidly overrun both the French forces and the British forces and every other nation as well, the, the Dutch and the Belgians. And so the major part of the British army found itself trapped on the beaches and town of Dunkirk and the area around with nowhere to go. And so from the tunnels under Dover Castle, uh, a huge operation of rescue was mounted, planned by the Royal Navy with the assistance of you know, lots of civilians to bring all these troops back, which they did over a period of nine, ten days in late May, early June 1940. So they rescued something like 338,000 soldiers from the beaches, which really enabled us to, to carry on. And, and this was immortalised most recently in the Dunkirk film by Christopher Nolan, and I think there was a previous one back a few decades as well. So equally as important as D-Day in a way, Dunkirk, because Dunkirk allowed the country to kind of recharge and reset, regroup, and then prepare for D-Day. That's exactly right. I mean, the vast majority of the professional arm of the British Army was in France at the time. And had it not got back, then the story could have been very, very different. I mean, they lost a lot of equipment, but you know, most of them returned home. Uh, and so we're able to, as you say, regroup, think again and fight again. Now, of course, 2019 marks 75 years since the Normandy landings and D-Day. Um, why was it such a significant event and how do you think it should be remembered today? Well, it was the beginning. It's so significant because it was the beginning of the end for the, the Nazi regime in Europe, you know, which had dominated Europe for a period of four or five years and which had subjugated Europe and done such terrible things to many, many people. This was the beginning of the end. Everybody knew once it had started that it was the beginning of the end and that it basically is the deliverance of people in, in Europe from that terrible threat. And all of us today, you know, Western democracy, if you like, owes its existence and we all owe our lives to the soldiers who took place on those landings on the 6th of June. And what should visitors to Dover Castle look out for when they are finding out a bit more about its role in the story and the events of the Second World War? The, the best thing to do is to go down into the underground tunnels where Operation Dynamo and Operation Fortitude South both had their venues. And so there's a series of underground tunnels that are cut into the chalk 20 metres under the ground below Dover Castle. And these were the places where soldiers were operating during Operation Dynamo and Operation Fortitude South. Uh, and so you can go there today and see something of what they were up to and something of the equipment that they were using at the time. They're very atmospheric places and they really give you a sense of what it must have been like for those men and women to work down there at times of crisis. It's really quite a, uh, an emotive and humbling experience. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about D-Day and Dover Castle's other roles in both the First and Second World Wars, just search for Dover Castle on the English Heritage website. There you can also find a special article by Paul about the D-Day deception. We're back next week, of course, with another chapter of history for your headphones. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>